book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 17 for tonight's study. So glad you're with us this evening and another opportunity just to get into scripture. Uh, we're uh, going right through the Bible and uh, we're zipping through Ezekiel. Uh, so, well, I don't know about zipping, but we're making progress here, I should say. Um, you know, the Bible study that we do, is, it's so important for us to understand that we need to let it do its work. Um, just because we're taking the notes and doing a Bible study doesn't mean we're getting it or applying it. I heard a story of a, an American uh, university professor who was a scholar of the Hebrew language and, um, and uh, was taking a sort of a trip over to Jerusalem, Israel from the United States uh, to do some stuff, work with the Hebrew University. Um, but when he got there, he, he met these other scholars and this one guy um, claimed, uh, the claim was made that he had memorized the entire Old Testament in Hebrew, <laughs> this guy in Jerusalem. And this professor from America was just amazed that somebody could memorize such a massive book and work. Um, but they were at, you know, having dinner and after dinner, they all went into the, um, the uh, living room area where they were all just sort of fellowshipping and what have you. But this guy, um, the, the, the American professor said, so you really do know the entire uh, Hebrew Bible by memory? And he said, yeah, just uh, name a scripture and I'll, I'll begin to speak. <laughs> and the, the American professor said, Psalm chapter one, the song we just sang, by the way. Um, and so the, uh, the guy who had the entire Hebrew Bible memorized started speaking right out of Psalm, Psalm chapter one, and he, and he gave the whole chapter and then chapter two, and he just kept going. And this guy went for like over an hour just reciting by memory through his mouth in Hebrew, uh, the, the whole book of Psalms in about an hour and a half, he did it. Uh, and they all just sat there amazed. But after that, the guy, you know, they were all retiring. One of the other professors came up and told the American professor, you know, what's amazing about that guy is he knows the Hebrew Bible by memory, but he is an atheist. <laughs> As it turns out, this guy who knew all of that Hebrew, he was an atheist. He didn't even believe in God. Um, can a person know about the Bible or even know the Bible without knowing God? Well, yeah, and the Bible has a lot to say about that person. That's not a healthy thing to have read the scriptures, to even know the scriptures, but not let the scriptures do the work that they need to do. God forbid that we be that person. Um, you know, I, I always used to say this a lot, you know, let's be careful not to just go through the Bible. Let's make sure the Bible goes through us. Uh, that's, that's what we have to do. Through the Bible is good, and I, I'm glad we're doing it. But make sure and let the word of God penetrate your heart and your mind and change who you are and start to transform you. Um, otherwise, you know, we're like the person the Bible says who looks in the mirror and sees a blemish on their skin, like mustard on their mustache, and they don't fix it. They just look in the mirror and see the mustard and then walk away and don't fix it. That's the person who reads the word but doesn't let it do its work. So that's an important thing. Now with Ezekiel, the people in that time, they were not listening to the word of God through the prophet, at least. Uh, they were ignoring them and uh, largely rejecting the, what the true prophets were saying. Remember there were the false prophets in that day, but just getting you all up to speed, Ezekiel was a trained priest, trained in Jerusalem to be the priest called um, to be in the office of a prophet 
from being a priest because of the, the days that they were living. He was now a prophet rather than a priest. Um, but he would be a captive from the second siege uh, of Nebuchadnezzar. By the way, the first siege would take you know, Daniel uh, and his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That would be the first siege. Uh, but the second siege would take Ezekiel, where he was taken to the river of Kibar there in Babylon. And that's where he would live and give his words of prophecy in Babylon for Jerusalem. Um, and then of course, Jeremiah would be that last prophet in the last and third and final siege in 586 uh, BC. But here, um, Ezekiel is prophesying about the final fall of Jerusalem, which would happen in 586. Um, he was telling the people, the Jews, both in Babylon, but also uh, it would get back to Jerusalem that Ezekiel the prophet was, would be saying these, these things. And so when we pick it up here in Ezekiel chapter 17, he's continuing with his messages of the destruction of Jerusalem. And, uh, and, he, and he has to use kind of tricky means to speak the word because the people weren't listening to the just overt word. So he would do drama. We've seen, you know, basically Ezekiel as a drama guy, you know, as he's, you know, hacking his hair up with a sword and eating food made with manure and, uh, and uh, lying on his side. And we've seen him be over, really so dramatic uh, because that's what the Lord asked him to do. But in Ezekiel chapter 17, he's gonna speak in a riddle or a parable to the, to the people and, uh, and hopefully they'll be interested because he's gonna say some things that are maybe weird to them. Uh, and maybe that'll get their attention. Isn't it interesting the Bible speaks in riddle and in parable? Uh, Jesus used the technique of parables, stories that would illustrate truths. And um, perhaps it was for memory, perhaps it was to catch our attention, uh, perhaps it was to give a, a, a nuance uh, in addition to just the facts, maybe a little bit of the heart behind it, you, you get a sense from a parable or a story or even a riddle, uh, maybe a little more of an, uh, an, an attitude that is linked to it. Um, so the Lord uses parable and riddle all throughout the scriptures. Here Ezekiel is gonna use this, this technique. And we begin right there in verse one of chapter 17. It says, and the word of the Lord came unto me saying, son of man, put forth a riddle, and speak a parable unto the house of Israel. The word riddle there in the Hebrew is an interesting word. It's hidah, which um, basically could be allegory or, or a riddle that's meant to be figured out or solved. Um, and so that's what they would have when he tells this riddle. Uh, they'd know, okay, you gotta figure this out. What's, what's he saying? And so he goes on in verse three and he says, and, and, and the Lord says, and say, thus saith the Lord God, or Jehovah God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, um, these words were probably sort of taken lightly in those days when, when a prophet says, thus saith Jehovah God. Um, they shouldn't have been taken lightly because if you recall in the book of Deuteronomy, when we were studying back there, the law and what have you, if a prophet gave a word and said, thus saith the Lord God of Israel or Jehovah God, if what they said didn't come to pass, they would be taken outside of the, the camp and stoned to death. If you were a prophet, you better have your prophesying down and you better have a direct line to the Lord or else you'd be dead. Now, by this time, you know, Ezekiel's saying, thus saith the Lord God, but the people say, yeah, whatever, because by that time, they weren't keeping the law. They weren't living by the law. And there were many false prophets that were um, saying, oh yeah, the Lord says, and thus saith the Lord. 
Um, and man, you gotta be careful these days because you know we have people saying the same things today. Thus saith the Lord. Oh, they may not say it in King James like that, but you know the Lord is telling me or what the Lord is showing me, be careful, make sure and always measure what you're hearing from the word of God. And I'm not just talking about a verse out of context kind of thing. I'm talking about measure what's being said with the whole scripture. Well, Brett, I don't know the whole scripture. Well, that's what we're doing here is we're going through the whole scripture. And oh, in about 15 years, we'll have gone through the Bible uh, for a second time. Uh, actually, it's uh, not 15 years. We, we are on a 15 year pass. We've already been through a 13 year pass through the Bible. This is our 15 year pass. And we we're probably uh, only um, uh, four or five years away from finishing. Uh, so that'll be great. Um, but, but as we go through the Bible, one of the things you gotta do is make sure that you know, what is being taught fits not with just the scripture the person is saying, but the whole scripture, and that's important. So the reason I bring that up is here's, you know, Ezekiel saying, thus saith the Lord God. With Ezekiel, it means something. When Ezekiel says that, he has, in fact, received a word from the Lord. There were prophets of that day saying, thus saith the Lord, that didn't have a clue. And they were saying stupid things, just like today. There are people saying things that are not in line with scripture. And uh, sad to say people are, you know, forwarding and sharing on Instagram and social media and tweeting the things that people are saying that may or may not really be true. Uh, and it's amazing. And it's not just the world that's giving misinformation, it's the church and it's um, everybody. Uh, it's amazing how we've made information so readily available and, and anybody can say anything at any time and it may be true and it may be false. And I'm finding so much of what we're hearing uh, turns out to be false. And so I love the word for its solidity. I love that we can look to the Bible on an evening like this, on a Wednesday night, and just know that what we're reading here is God's holy word. Well, Ezekiel's got that word from the Lord for the people. And so he says, verse three, God, and, and say, thus saith the Lord God, a great eagle with great wings, long-winged, full of feathers, which had diverse colors, came unto Lebanon and took the highest branch of the cedar. And he cropped off the top of his young twigs and he carried it into the land of traffic and he set it in a city of merchants. Now pause for a second. Some of you are getting excited. Hey, this is the United States in the Bible. See, it's right here, the great eagle. That's us. We're mentioned in the Bible in prophecy and stuff. Isn't it funny when we Bible prophecy, you know, students try to look for the United States in the Bible? Man, it's a rough go. Uh, but this, you say, Brett, it, it really matches a great eagle, long wing. That's us. We've long been a powerful, you know, picture. And maybe this parable, this riddle is speaking of the United States. Um, and it's got diverse colors. That's the United States diversity, uh, the rainbow, LGBTQ. Uh, no, that's not it either. Um, well, well, Brett, it says here they got diverse colors and they took, uh, came to Lebanon. And then it says, this, this seals the deal. It, it's not only America, we're talking about Portland, Oregon. Because it says, you know, verse four, they, they carried it a land, into a land of traffic. That's us, we've got traffic on our freeways. Uh, well, that'd be a poor interpretation of this passage. Uh, the eagle here is not the United States. Well, Brett, how do you know? Well, as it turns out, I know for sure this is not the United States, and here's why. Because this is one of the few riddles and parables in the Bible 
where the Lord gives us the interpretation. <laughs> it's coming up next. We're gonna read that later on in this chapter. So we know what this, is, this riddle is gonna be solved by the Lord for us, uh, by Ezekiel for the people. Um, so that's gonna seal the deal. Now, there are some parables the Lord spoke, like for example, the parable of the sower of the seed. Jesus would tell the parable and then he would give the interpretation about the, the, the sower and the seed being the word of God being sown in the soil of men's hearts and those various soils that, uh, and conditions where the seed would not produce fruit. The Lord gave them the interpretation, but some of the parables, he just leaves us to figure it out. This one, he gives an interpretation, so it's gonna shut and, uh, you know, open and shut case, if you would, of what this is about. So we'll tell you what all this is about in a second. But you've got a great eagle, uh, and you've got this, uh, this diverse colors within that eagle. And, and if you were saying the United States and diversity and all that, you would be right about that as far as the interpretation. The diverse colors will mean various people groups joining together. So there are some interesting um, you know, correlations here. But he, he says um, that, uh, you know, he cropped off verse four, the top of his young twigs uh, and carried it into the land of traffic. He set it in the city of merchants or, um, um, you know, economic power and wealth. New York City, no. We're gonna find out this is Babylon and we're gonna find out the eagle is Nebuchadnezzar. We'll see that in a second. So verse five, he took also of the seed of the land and planted it in a fruitful field. And he placed it by great waters and set it as a willow tree. And it grew and became a spreading vine of low stature whose branches turned toward him. And the roots thereof were under him. So it became a vine and brought forth branches and shot forth sprigs. Um, there was also, verse seven, another great eagle. Maybe this is the United States. Nope. A great eagle with great wings and many feathers. And behold, this vine did bend her roots toward him and shot forth her branches toward him that he might water it by the furrows of her plantation. It was planted in a good soil by great waters that it might bring forth branches and that it might bear fruit that it might be a goodly vine. Say thou, thus saith the Lord God, shall it prosper? Shall he not pull up the roots thereof and cut off the fruit thereof that it wither? It shall wither in all the leaves of her spring, even without great power or many people to pluck it up by the roots thereof. Yea, behold, being planted, shall it prosper? Shall it not utterly wither? When the east wind toucheth it, it shall wither in the furrows where it grew. Okay, so there's the riddle. The eagles, two eagles, uh, which would be two nations or two leaders. Um, the first eagle is none other than Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. And what would they do? Well, this, this eagle would come and go to Lebanon. Now you say, what does Lebanon have to do with anything? Well, interesting, uh, Jewish scholars and rabbis teach this is Jerusalem. Well, Brett, I've been to Jerusalem and it's not Lebanon. Yeah, but did you know that there was a uh, sort of a idiom of the day they called, you know, um, the cedars of Lebanon was what they called the temple in Jerusalem. And the reason they called it the cedars of Lebanon is largely, if you recall, Solomon went and got the beautiful cedars of Lebanon uh, to build the temple there on the Temple Mount. 
And uh, those cedars of Lebanon sort of became a, a byword that that was speaking of Jerusalem, the cedars of Lebanon, and then it shortened to just Lebanon being Jerusalem. Um, now you say, Brett, that's a leap. Yeah, but it's a leap that the Jews make when they interpret this. The rabbis teach that this is speaking of Jerusalem. And it also will be interpreted as that here in a minute. Uh, so we do know it's true. But, but that's why the, the cedars of Lebanon is what the temple was made of in Jerusalem. And uh, it was kind of the idiom of the day. So what happens? Well, this big eagle comes and it says here, uh, what does it do? Um, it, it's full of feathers and has diverse colors. That's all the nations that the Babylonians had assimilated in their conquest and their conquering. Um, sort of like the United States is a melting pot. Uh, in the same way, you know, Babylon was a melting pot only because of the, the Babylonians wiping everybody out and then assimilating those people into their culture. Uh, we've talked about that in previous times. But what did he do? He cropped off the top of his young twigs there in Lebanon, the Jerusalem, and, um, and carried them into the land of traffic. That would be Babylon. And he set it in a city of merchants. That would be Babylon. So what happened? This tree of Lebanon, being the idiom, had some of its branches taken and taken off. And that would be the captivity. That would be Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And some of these branches then would be taken to Babylon, where the city of merchants, the land of traffic, and carry them off. But then... Verse five, he took the seed of the land and planted it in a fruitful field. So um, this is interesting. This starts to speak of something else. You've got the seed of the land. Um, commentaries talk about how this is none other than Zedekiah. And uh, also the description coming up will, will point to Zedekiah. The, the seed, speaking of the line, the royal line of the kings of Jerusalem and the kings of Judah. Now, this is an important thing because the kings of Judah were supposed to be a, a line. Remember the Davidic covenant where David was told by God that through his line would come the Messiah and the king would rule from Jerusalem and have an everlasting kingdom. So the Jews were very into this seed uh, of the land. Um, but what happened to the seed of the land? Zedekiah would be taken into Babylon and he would die there. So that leaves a dilemma about the kings of Jerusalem and the future kings and when the king of kings, the Messiah would come, is this gonna cut this off? Uh, and this is gonna be what we're gonna deal with here in this chapter. But, um, you know, the implication is that the, the um, not, you know, nothing else would happen other than the, some of the Jews in Babylon, they'd be taken there and they'd be planted and they'd even be blessed there for a certain season. That's kind of the idea. Um, so that's the first eagle, Babylon taking the Jews, including Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, into captivity, the branches, the high branches. And then the seed also taken, that would be Zedekiah. We'll see this interpretation coming in, in a bit. But the second eagle, we believe, is speaking of Pharaoh down in Egypt. Um, this is um, uh, an interesting Pharaoh. The Bible refers to him as Pharaoh Hafra. Uh, the Pharaoh of this time. Now, the, now what, what does e Egypt have to do with any of this? Well, if you recall the Jews, when Babylon was threatening, the Jews thought that uh, they could get help from the Egyptians. Um, if you recall there in 2 Chronicles uh, 36, uh, Jeremiah uh, 37, 44, and 52, 
Also Isaiah chapter 30. In fact, do you recall Isaiah chapter 30? I'll just remind you from our study in Isaiah. He says, woe to the rebellious children of, his, of, of the Lord that take counsel, but not of me, that cover with a covering, but not of my spirit, that walk and go down into Egypt and have not asked at my mouth to strengthen themselves of the Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. You see, this is the problem. These Jews thought that, well, the Egyptians, we'll get them to help us. If God's not gonna help us, then we'll have Egypt help us. And as it turns out, you know, the Egyptians, they'd been the power in the land for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. The Egyptians were dominant in that part of the world for so long because they were known for the Egyptian horses and chariots. And nobody was able to subdue or threaten the Egyptians during that time for many hundreds of years until the Babylonians came along. And then even the Egyptians were shaken in their sandals, uh, worried about the Babylonians. But before the Babylonians really came to full power, the Egyptians, the Jews went to them saying, we need your help. Remember, even Jeremiah is the very last of the group. Uh, as they were in Jerusalem, they, they made Jeremiah go to Egypt, even though Jeremiah said, do not go to Egypt. Um, and we saw that in the book of Jeremiah. But all that to say, Egypt is a type or a picture of the world. And, um, and that's what we, are, we learn from the Old Testament stories here is we need to put our trust in the Lord. You know, um, God told the Jews and Zedekiah specifically, surrender yourself. Make a covenant with the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, and keep your covenant and uh, be subservient to him. You're gonna be a vassal king. That's the way it is. The Lord told him that. Zedekiah would rebel and the children of Israel would rebel by trying to align themselves with Egypt and doing other things. And it would end up you know, hurting them because they didn't go with God's plan and purpose. And you and I need to learn the lesson of the Jews in those times. You know, you and I, when we're in trouble, we can go to the world like Egypt uh, that's certainly powerful and, and has, has had certain successes and various things. But woe unto the children of God that go to the rebellious Egyptians, the world for their help. How do we do that today? We don't go for chariots and horses. We go for, you know, um, counsel and psychology. We go to the Egyptians uh, for wisdom on how to deal with things, even though it's not wisdom, it's, it's actually worldliness. Um, instead of putting our trust in the Lord, we, we put our trust in human devices. And some of them are helpful, but some of them are quite destructive. Um, and we take the counsel of men and not of God. And that's one of the things that the children of Israel, big, big goof that they made. God forbid that we take the counsel of the world over the counsel of the word, the word of God. Uh, we should always go with the Bible and reject the world when it goes uh, contrary to scripture. Um, you know, um, and there's a million things we could talk about. We could talk about CRT, critical race theory. We could talk about uh, gender issues. All of these things are addressed clearly by God. God created male and female, did he create them? Uh, we know that scientifically and biologically, but it's only the world in recent days that have said, no, 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 there are many, many genders. Uh, you know, there were three genders and there were 10 genders and now there's hundreds of genders. And, and, uh, and it's, uh, we've just become, you know, this people accepting what the world says and Christians are going along with it to try to keep the peace, even though it's a total lie. Uh, we're still saying, oh yeah, 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 there's many genders. Uh, the church should not live the lie of the world. We should, even if it costs us, be given to truth. The church should be given to truth. And that's been a theme 
um, that we've seen both here in Ezekiel, but also throughout the Bible, that we should not live out the lie of gender, you know, um, multiple genders and stuff like that. Um, uh, things like law enforcement, defund the police, police are evil. Well, as it turns out, there's a Bible verse. <laughs> Romans 13 tells us that the law enforcement is of God. In fact, not only are we not to defund the police, we're to obey the police and do whatever they tell us to do. <laughs> That's what Romans 13 says for that one who wields the sword or the Glock or whatever it is, um, that person we are called by the Bible to submit to those authorities. And uh, if you're doing right, you shouldn't be afraid of the police. But if you're doing evil, be afraid. That's what the Bible says. And that's the problem today is, you know, people are doing evil things and they think that they don't, don't have to submit to police. And so um, Romans 13, so clear, read Romans 13. Uh, it's so important that people get that the Bible actually addresses, uh, you know, race and law enforcement and gender and all these issues that we've, we've lost our minds in this current day. Uh, I love that the Bible is immovable, unshakable, and it's still true. And it rings true. Um, that's what happens when the, the church, God's people, turn to the world for wisdom. We end up losing our minds. And uh, man, I think we need to keep our minds. The word of God is what we need to keep our minds stayed upon. Well, the people of Israel during you know, Ezekiel's time and others, Jeremiah's, uh, Isaiah, they were all looking to go to the world, Egypt for help, when they should have been going to the word of God. And it would end up costing them dearly and brutally. So um, that's really what's being said here. So that's that other great eagle in verses seven uh, through 10. Um, and it's the same thing really of what Isaiah was saying uh, in verse nine, shall thou say, thus saith the Lord God, shall it prosper? Will your alliance with this eagle, the Egyptians, prosper? The answer is no. There was a rhetorical question, but the answer would be no. The alliance with Egypt would be an utter failure. Verse 10 says, um, you know, your alliance with Egypt, well, if you plan it, will it prosper? The answer is no. And shall it not utterly wither when the east wind touches? Does anybody remember what the east wind refers to? If you take these books that we've been in the last several you know, years even, uh, the east wind is speaking of the Babylonians coming from the east, the wind of the Babylonians coming to destroy Jerusalem, Judea, and all that region of the world. Um, that, that, so will your Egyptian alliance survive when the east wind blows? The answer is no, no, and no. Uh, that's really what this little story, this parable is saying. So I, I've kind of given you a bit of the interpretation, but now let's look at the biblical interpretation and hopefully we'll be able to connect all those dots as we read. So verses one through 10, we have the, the parable itself. Uh, verses uh, 11, all the way through 21, we have the interpretation of the riddle. It says, moreover, verse 11, the word of the Lord came to me saying, say now to the rebellious house, know ye not what these things mean? Tell them, behold, the king of Babylon, that's the first eagle, is come to Jerusalem and hath taken the king thereof and the princes thereof and led them with him to Babylon and hath taken of the king's seed and made a covenant with him and hath taken an oath of him. He hath also taken the mighty of the land that the kingdom might be base, that it might not lift itself up 
but that by keeping of the covenant, it might stand. But he rebelled against him in sending his ambassadors into Egypt, that they might give him horses and much people. Shall he prosper? Shall he escape that doeth such things? Or shall he break the covenant and be delivered? As I live, saith the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwelleth that made him king, whose oath he despised and whose covenant he break, even with him in the midst of Babylon, he shall die. Uh, neither shall Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company make for him in the, in the war by casting up mounts and building forts to cut off many persons. Seeking, uh, pardon me, seeing he despised the oath by breaking the covenant when lo, he had given his hand and hath done all these things, he shall not escape. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, as I live, surely mine oath that he hath despised and my covenant he hath broken, even it will I rec uh, recompense upon my, his own head. And I will spread my net upon him and he shall be taken in my snare and I will bring him to Babylon and will plead with him for his trespass that he has trespassed against me. And all his fugitives, the chief men of Babylon, is another translation there. All of his chief men, fugitives, all of his bands shall fall by the sword and they shall remain, they that remain shall be scattered toward all the winds and you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it. We're speaking here of the king's seed. I told you that was Zedekiah. And then it talks about this covenant and the, the king breaking his covenant. What are we talking about there? Well, this might seem familiar if you were going through the scriptures with us about this. Um, I, I would say perhaps the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And if you remember what went down with Zedekiah and his covenant, it's 2 Chronicles, jot this down in your notes, 2 Chronicles 36, uh, verses 11 through 13, tells us the brief story of that. I'll just read it to you. It's 2 Chronicles 36, 11. Zedekiah was one and 20 years old when he began to reign and reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. Um, and it says, and he did that which is evil in the sight of the Lord his God and humbled not himself before Jeremiah the prophet speaking from the mouth of the Lord. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who made him swear by God. That was the covenant that Nebuchadnezzar made with Zedekiah. But he was stiff-necked and he hardened his heart and turning uh, unto the Lord uh, and turning you know, from the Lord God of Israel. Um, so the story is basically this. Jeremiah, if you recall, was saying, Zedekiah, make a covenant with the king of Babylon. Uh, you know, he's gonna invade. You need to go peaceably and, uh, and rule for Nebi as a vassal king. Zedekiah didn't wanna do that. He rebelled not against as much Babylon, but he was rebelling against the Lord. Jeremiah told him what to do. And he said, no, I'm gonna rebel. And he went down to Egypt and tried to make an alliance uh, with the Egyptians, like we said. And that's really what this little prophecy, this little parable is telling before it even happened. Ezekiel the prophet, before all this happened, said, here's what's gonna go down. The, the seed, the royal line, Zedekiah is gonna make a covenant um, and he's gonna break his covenant with Nebuchadnezzar and God's gonna judge him for breaking his covenant. Now, some of you might be struggling with, well, Brett, making a covenant with a scoundrel, you don't have to keep that covenant. Well, as it turns out, this is something that a lot of people don't wanna hear. But as Christians, as Jews, they were to keep covenants. If they made a covenant, they were supposed to keep it. 
And it had nothing to do with the person they made the covenant with. Even if it was a scoundrel, they were supposed to keep those covenants with those people. And there's several places in the Bible that where God says, I want you to keep my covenants. Now, one thing about this that's important is um, the reason I think God wants us to do that is he says, be ye holy as I, the Lord, am holy. And one thing God does is he keeps his covenants. God does not break his covenants with his people. Praise the Lord for that because he's made a covenant to the Jews that's an everlasting covenant that he would bless them and that a king would come and reign from Jerusalem. And we know God's not done with the Jews. He's keeping his covenant with the Jews. But as Christians, it's important for us to know that God keeps his covenants and so should we. We live in a day of covenant breaking. The Bible even says in the last days, people will break covenants uh, like, they're, like it's nobody's business. And we see people break covenants, some of the most holy of covenants. Um, we've become a culture. In fact, when I even bring this up nowadays, Christians get upset, but I'm divorced. You shouldn't bring that up because it's a hurtful thing that I had a divorce. Yeah, but you broke your covenant. Yeah, but I didn't know what, what a scoundrel he was. Well, as it turns out, um, it doesn't matter. <laughs> you should be careful when you're young and getting married to not marry a scoundrel because the Lord says what the Lord's put together in marriage, don't ever let anybody put us under. I hate divorce, the Lord says. And our world has gotten so you know, um, good with just, well, just, you know, he leaves his socks on the floor and I just kind of don't like him anymore after 10, 15 years of marriage. Uh, and so we, we just divorce. And he, you know, the guy thinks he can get married to some younger improved model and, and the lady's so sick of her husband, she wants to divorce him. That's a covenant that is not to be broken. Um, and I know that I sound like an old fuddy-duddy, but it's just what the Bible says. Again, Truth in the world is relativism, and so you never know what's really true. But if you want to know what's really true, well, listen to this. Ecclesiastes says this. When you vow a vow unto God, Ecclesiastes 5, verse 4, defer not to pay it. For he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better it is that thou should not vow than that you should not pay the vow. Suffer not your mouth to cause thy flesh to sin. Neither say thou before the angel that it was an error. Wherefore should God be angry at thy voice and destroy the work of thine hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words, there are also diverse vanities, but fear thou God. A God-fearing person keeps his or her vows and covenants, even if it's brutal. Um, and that's what the Bible teaches. It's, it's tough news but it's what the Bible teaches. And, and um, you know, there's some biblical examples of this happening. Do you remember, by the way, um, during the time of Joshua, I believe it was Joshua chapter nine. Do you recall when a group of people came and they were a little nervous, this group of people, because the Jews were trouncing through the land, coming into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. And so this group, they said, we're gonna be toast like everybody else. Jer Jericho has fallen, Ai has fallen, all these other cities. So these group of people called the Gibeonites. They only were a few miles away and they thought, let's, let's trick the Jews into making a covenant because we know the Jews will keep their covenants if they make them. So the Gibeonites, remember the story there in Judges, uh, you know, Joshua chapter nine? They got their shoes and they rubbed them in the dirt and made holes in them and put on dirty, dusty clothes and brought empty, dried up water bottles and stale, crusty pieces of bread and they put them in their bags and they came walking through the desert and bumped into the Jews saying, water, 
water. And the Jews came and said, who are you guys? Oh, we're from a land far, far away. Do you remember this story? It was, it was a group of people that just a little hike, a little 15 minute hike uh, from where they lived to say hi to the Jews. Uh, and they said, we wanna make covenant with you because um, we know that God is with you. And so, so Jeremiah, or pardon me, uh, Joshua, he didn't even seek the Lord on this one. He felt bad for these guys with their dirty sandals and holy clothes and stale bread and said, man, you've come this far. We'll make a covenant, an everlasting covenant with you to keep you guys safe. We will not attack you. We will not wipe you out like all the other nations. Now, here's the problem. God told the Jews to wipe out everybody including the Gibeonites. They were part of the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Parasites, and the Flashlights. All of those, the, the Gibeonites were part of that group. They were supposed to be destroyed. Joshua doesn't even pray and say, Lord, should we make covenant with these people? But he does it. But then the Lord says, now you made that covenant, you gotta keep that covenant. And God held Israel accountable to keeping covenant there with the Gibeonites. Now, what's interesting, you know, when we read about, you know, keeping our covenant and stuff, in 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses one through three, King Saul, hundreds of years future in the forward, uh, King Saul starts fighting and killing off Gibeonites. And the Lord says, you gotta stop that. Why? Because Joshua made a covenant hundreds of years ago that they would not destroy the Gibeonites. Like God was holding them accountable to their covenant hundreds of years after they made that covenant. The point is when you read your Bible, one thing God is kind of a stickler on is being people of our word and keeping our promises. We live in a culture where divorce is just quick Bankruptcy, oh, sorry, I just didn't have enough money to pay us, so whatever, file chapter 11, bankruptcy, and so we're not gonna pay. Like, a Christian doesn't do that, according to the Bible. Um, kind of interesting. Um, Booker T. Washington, a true hero, um, describes a meeting that he had with an ex-slave from Virginia uh, in his book, Up From Slavery, a, a book that everybody should read. Um, but... Um, the story is kind of amazing to me. Um, Booker T writes, he says, I found there was this man who had made a contract with his master two or three years previous to the Emancipation Proclamation to the effect that the slave was to be permitted to buy himself by paying so much per year for his body that he could buy his freedom. And while he was paying for himself, he was to be permitted to labor where and for whom he pleased. Finding that he could secure better wages in Ohio, he went there. And when freedom came, he still, he was still in debt to his master some $300. Now, you gotta understand, $300 back in those days was, that'd be like tens of thousands of dollars today. Um, notwithstanding that the Emancipation Proclamation freed him from any obligations to his master, this black man walked the greater portion of the distance back to where his old master lived in Virginia, placed the very last dollar with interest in his hands. In talking to me about this, this former slave man told me that he knew that he did not have to pay this debt, but that he had given his word to the master and his word had never been broken. He felt that he could not enjoy his freedom until he had fulfilled his promise. Oh, man, um, <clears throat> that, that's something that uh, 
I mean, as a pastor who believes the Bible, I'd even say, man, yeah, dude, you don't owe him anything. In fact, uh, you owe him a punch in the face um, or worse. <laughs> um, but isn't it amazing? This man had more of a godly even mindset because the Bible doesn't say you don't owe if the person's a scoundrel or a horrible person, or if you made a covenant with someone that's evil, <clears throat> we're supposed to keep our covenants. I know that's a hard word, but for those of you that are contemplating divorce, uh, I'm trying to up the game a little bit so you realize God's not into that. God wants you to fight for your marriage and do whatever you can to fix the problems. And don't just do the easy way out. People think it's an easy way out and it's not, never is. Um, there is one condition where divorce is permitted in the Bible and that is once adultery takes place. And there's a reason I believe Jesus does that. The Bible tells us for the hardness of men's hearts. Um, but the, the destruction that happens from adultery, it's the person who committed adultery has broken that vow uh, that is a godly vow. They've broken it before God and it, it hurts and destroys marriages. Um, and that's really a painful but true thing that Jesus even said for that reason alone, um, someone. Now, can God restore a marriage that's had an adulterous affair? I've seen it, but it's very rare. It's a miracle when that happens, I believe. I've counseled hundreds of couples over the years uh, that have tried to work through adulterous things, but there's a heart thing. And there's a reason, I think, where God makes that an out for marriage. Well, Brett, what about wife beating? Well, uh, I've talked about this lots of times, but I gotta say it again. If a wife is being hurt by her husband, she needs to get out of that house right now. I've always said it that way. Um, she needs to get to a safe place. The church needs to come alongside and help that woman and give that man uh, what for and teach him and train him um, and you know, rehabilitate him and restore him to, from his insanity. Um, of course you don't leave a woman in a situation where she's beaten. But as it turns out, even that, I would have put that with divorce. If it were me writing the Bible, uh, if I were God, I would have said um, divorce happens when there's been adultery and physical abuse. Um, uh, and I would have made that one of the things because that seems right to me. But isn't it funny? There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end there leads to death. It's interesting that the Lord, now I'm not saying that a woman should just stay and put herself in danger. Uh, there's a difference between divorce and separation for the, for the purpose of safety. Uh, there's a difference there. Uh, that's, that's what I've taught for all these years. The reason I say that is because I've been accused by people that weren't listening uh, over the years that I've said that a woman just stays in a house and is to be beat up by her husband. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever thought of, even heard of, and I hope you understand that's just evil. Uh, and it's always been that way. But, but the thing that makes people mad is they say, Brett, divorce should happen if there's been physical abuse. Um, well, you can do that if you wanna live in sin <laughs> and add sin to sin. Some people don't care anymore and they just do sin and they don't care what God thinks. But as it turns out, the Bible doesn't give us that out, uh, interestingly enough. So keeping your covenant, I didn't mean to get off on that that far, but maybe that's what the Lord would have for some of you uh, tonight. Uh, as, as, as you might be considering breaking your vows or covenants or business deals or marriages or whatever the covenants might be. Uh, this is a good example of a king who broke a covenant that he made with God and that he made to Nebuchadnezzar and he breaks that. And God says, because of that, you're dead. Um, he will die, end of verse 16. 
So really that's verses 11 through 21 is, is the, uh, you know, Nebuchadnezzar and Zedekiah at the end uh, that's gonna happen uh, in 586 BC came to pass exactly like this. Now, you, know, you say, but that's a pretty bleak deal. Well, that's where we take hope in verse 22. The third section of this, we say hope for the future. Verse 22, thus saith the Lord God, I will take of the highest branch of the high cedar and will set it and crop it off from the top of its young twigs, a tender one, uh, and will plant it upon a high mountain and, and eminent. Now, this is where reading the rest of the Bible pays off. Do you remember where we heard about a tender branch or a tender plant? Does anybody remember this? Um, this is something we did a whole Sunday morning on, the branch. We did it around Christmas time, talking about the branch, which is talking about Jesus. Here's again, the Lord giving Ezekiel the same uh, notion. Verse 22, he says, the highest branch, and it's a tender one, the tender branch. Um, let me remind you what Isaiah, some people call this the holy of holies of the Bible. Isaiah chapter 53. Listen to this. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant or a tender netzer branch. And as a root out of a dry ground, he hath no former comeliness, um, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He will be despised and rejected of men. Uh, surely he hath borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. We did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. And all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone his own way and the Lord hath laid upon him, the tender branch, the netzer. Uh, upon him, the iniquity of us all. So as a Bible student, that's what you start to recognize here when Ezekiel says, the Lord is gonna take a branch from Jerusalem and it's gonna be a tender branch and he's gonna do something different. What's he gonna do? Well, if you know the story, you already know what it's gonna do. But here Ezekiel fills it in for us. Verse 23. In the mountain of the height of Israel, I will plant it. It shall bring forth boughs and bear fruit and be a goodly cedar. Under it shall dwell all fowl of every wing in the shadow of the branches thereof shall they dwell. And all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, have brought down the high tree and have exalted the low tree and have dried up the green tree and have made the dry tree to flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and have done it. This is the hope for Israel, that Israel, the little tree would be, uh, you know, uh, trounced, for many, many years, but eventually the Lord would put down the big tree and bring up the little tree, the dry tree, the dead tree, and the Lord would bring it back to life. And that's Israel. And Ezekiel is gonna talk much more about this in future chapters. We're gonna get into that in depth. Chapter 18, um, the word of the Lord came unto me again saying, what mean ye that you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel saying, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, saith the Lord God, you shall not have occasion anymore to use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the father, so also the soul of the son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. This is where Ezekiel's dealing with a dumb saying that the people had. Do you think we have dumb sayings? Um, uh, I think we do. Uh, can't think of any off the top of my head, but you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. 
Uh, as it turns out, words can be some of the most hurtful things you ever deal with. <laughs> it's, it, we like to say stuff that's just dumb. And, um, you know, idioms, like, you know, he has a chip on his shoulder. Well, this is what they, they had. They had a, like, what does it mean to have a chip on a person's shoulder? Is there a literal chip of something on a shoulder? <laughs> no, it's a, it's a saying. Well, they had a saying, sour grapes. Our teeth are set on edge because our parents' teeth were set on edge. That what they're saying was, saying sour grapes, sour grapes, they were saying that we're not held accountable to our sins because our parents made us the way we are. In other words, we don't, we're not gonna have to stand before God in our sins because our parents were sinners. And because their teeth were set on edge, our teeth are set on edge. We've inherited their sinful stuff so God can't punish us. Well, here the Lord's gonna spend the rest of this chapter or a huge part of it saying, nope, you're gonna be held accountable for your sins. And he's gonna give that illustration in painful detail. Let's take a look. He's gonna talk about, first of all, the just grandfather, the ungodly son, and then he's gonna talk about the just grandson. Now, by the way, some people see here that we're talking about first Hezekiah, then we're talking about Manasseh, the son of you know, Hezekiah, and then the son of Manasseh was Josiah. Do you remember that lineage? And if you recall, Hezekiah was a good king, Manasseh was a horrible king, and um, Josiah was a good king. And so the Lord's gonna use these three kings as an example of the soul that sins, it's gonna die. Uh, they're gonna be responsible for their sins. So he starts with the, the, the just grandfather, verse five. But if a man be just and do that which is lawful and right and hath not eaten upon the mountains, neither hath lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, neither hath he defiled his neighbor's wife, neither hath come near to a menstruous woman and hath not oppressed any, but hath restored the, to doctor, uh, pardon me, to de debtor his pledge, hath spoiled none by violence and hath given his bread to the hungry, hath covered the naked with a garment. He that hath not given forth upon usury, neither hath taken any increase, that hath withdrawn his hand from iniquity, hath executed true judgment between man and man, and hath walked in my statutes, statutes and hath kept my judgments to deal truly. He is just, he shall surely live, saith the Lord God. Now, this long list of do's and don'ts, um, this could be a long discussion on the law from Leviticus and from Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, the laws of the Jews. And, and uh, I'm not gonna go into all that. We've done studies on these rules, Deuteronomy chapter four, Leviticus chapter 18, and other pa passages, you know, Leviticus 25. There's all kinds of rules that are mentioned here. And, and we go into the law, but remember, we're no longer under the law. That law was for the Jews. We live in a different dispensation. Uh, so, you know, um, that brings a whole nother discussion. But in this case, the just, you know, grandfather, Hezekiah, he's a good guy and he's walking with the Lord, keeping his statutes, commandments, and judgments. So he'll live and he's just. Well, then you go to his son, the, the ungodly son, Manasseh, verse 10. If he... The, the, the guy in verses five through nine, if he begets a son that is a robber, a shedder of blood and doth things like uh, the like to any one of those things and that doeth not any of those duties, but even hath eaten upon the mountains and defiled his neighbor's wife and hath oppressed the poor and needy and is spoiled by violence and hath not restored the pledge and hath lifted up his eyes unto the idols and hath committed abomination, hath given forth upon usury or you know, large um, interest rates, and have taken increase, then 
shall he live? He shall not live. He hath done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon him. So the first guy, the grandfather, he was a righteous guy. He's gonna live. The second guy, evil, he's gonna die in his sin. Now we come to the next guy, the son of that guy. Uh, verse 14, now lo, if he beget a son, the guy that's the big sinner in verses uh, 10 through 13, if he begets a son that seeth all his father's sins, which he hath done and considereth and doeth not such the like, that hath not eaten upon the mountains, neither hath lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, hath not defiled his neighbor's wife, neither hath oppressed any, hath not withholden the pledge, neither hath spoiled by violence, but hath given his bread to the hungry and hath covered the naked with a garment that hath taken off his hand from the poor, hath not received usury or increase, um, hath executed my judgment, hath walked in my statutes. He shall not die for the, for the iniquity of his father. He shall surely live. As for his father, because he cruelly oppressed, spoiled his brother by violence and did that which was not good among his people, lo, even he shall die in his iniquity. Yet, verse 19, why, uh, yet say ye why? Doth not the son bear the iniquity of the father? When the son hath done that which is lawful and right and hath kept all my statutes and have done them, he shall surely live. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son that, uh, the son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. Um, but uh, the righteous of the, the righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. Okay, so this is a big deal. Uh, you know, you're gonna be held accountable for your sins according to the Old Testament here. Um, now there's good news here for us that say, well, we're all sinners, so we're all in trouble. Yes, that's true. Um, even Josiah was a sinner, but there's a righteousness that comes even in, in the Old Testament times that we'll talk about here in a second. But the main thing we need to walk away with on this is um, you can't blame your parents. If you're an alcoholic and you say, well, I'm an alcoholic because my dad was an alcoholic, so I guess that's just who I am. It's in my DNA. Well, as it turns out, that's not gonna hold up when you stand before God. The soul that sins, it will die. You're held accountable. You can't blame mommy dearest. You can't blame anybody else for your sins. You will be held accountable for your sins. That's an important thing. Um, I see that propensity for people to dismiss their sins because of their DNA or the way they're made up, their Enneagram number, uh, or their phlegmatic, melancholy, choleric personality that was given to them by their parents. I'm just the way I am. I'm a jerk because my dad was a jerk. No, you'll be held accountable for your sins. Um, and that's something where psychology in the Bible tends to disagree, where I've seen, not all psychology, but some psychology uh, tries to say, well, you are the way you are because your parents are the way they were. And in your history, uh, you have a, you have a get, get out of jail free pass because your parents were such horrible people. That doesn't work in the Bible. Now you say, but Brett, what about the sins of the fathers being visited upon their generations? You know, like it talks about there in the, in the, in the law. Well, that's a different thing. There are generational sins that tend to go. And I think you might say an alcoholic tends to beget an alcoholic. Um, and if, you're, if you have a father that was a raging alcoholic, you probably should watch out because you probably have that genetic makeup to be given to addiction of that nature. Um, but it still doesn't get you off the hook. Um, and the generational sins, by the way, I believe in the New Testament times can be broken at any moment. 
You can break off the generational curses. Uh, people say, I'm just cursed. No, um, old things are passed away. All things become new for the person who's in Christ Jesus. I love the stories of people in our church who were raised in homes that were horrible, abusive parents, abusive fathers, um, who dads that were raised, you know, young men that were raised in horrible homes only to come out of that, be saved, follow Jesus and become the father that you would hope a godly man would look like. We've got a bunch of those guys in the church that have changed the narrative and they didn't visit their sins of their father upon their, their, their own life. Um, let the Lord be the newness of life. Uh, start brand new, uh, get that from the Lord. Well, the Jews had a saying, eh, it's our parents' fault. Uh, and the Lord said, don't say that anymore in Israel. But verse 21, it says, but if the wicked will turn from all his sins that he hath committed and keep all my statutes and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live and shall not die. All, this tra all his transgressions that he hath committed, they shall be not mentioned unto him. Boy, don't you love that idea? No mentioning of your transgressions. In his righteousness that he hath done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith the Lord God, and not that the, he should turn, return from his ways and live? Here's where the, we get that notion of the Lord saying, man, I don't take any pleasure in the wicked's death, but that's what's gonna happen nonetheless. But the Lord doesn't say, I'm gonna kill them and get joy out of it. People think God's a cosmic killjoy and if you're bad, he's gonna crush you like the dog that you are. That's not God. God takes no pleasure. You know, Second Peter, I would that none should perish, the Lord says. The heart of the Lord is that people repent and walk in truth and live. But verse 24, when the righteous turneth away from his righteousness and committeth iniquity and doeth according to all the abominations that the wicked man doeth, shall he live? All his righteousness that he hath done shall not be mentioned and his trespass that he hath trespassed and in his sin that he hath sinned in them shall he die. So um, that's the thing, you know, you say, Brett, I thought God was the same today, yesterday and forever. And why is this Old Testament different? If you're doing good things, you're gonna live. And if you're doing bad things, you're gonna die of your sins. Well, that's, nothing's changed. Yeah, but Brett, in the New Testament, we are given imputed righteousness. Well, don't you understand? It's the same. Those people, even Josiah, as mentioned as the good king here, he sinned just like everybody else. The difference is he was declared righteous by God. And if you recall, Abraham's the model for that. Abraham believed God, so it was counted unto him for righteousness. And that's true for all the Old Testament believers in God. They were accounted as righteous, even though they were all sinners. Um, let me take you on a little romp through Romans. Uh, I love Romans chapter three. Um, um, well, I mean, uh, let's go Romans chapter three. Um, Let's go Romans chapter four. I could do Romans three as well because uh, we talk about justification, propitiation, redemption, all these things. But, but um, because we're talking about the Old Testament, let's talk about Abraham. Verse one of chapter four of Romans says, what shall we say that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Here it is. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. That, by the way, comes from Genesis 15, 6. But it goes on in Romans and clarifies, verse five, but to him that worketh not, but believes on him that justifies the ungodly, his faith 
is counted unto him for righteousness. Even as David also describes the blessedness of the man whom God imputeth righteousness without works. In other words, we're not saved by our works. We're saved by God declaring us righteous by us believing in God, counting for us as righteous. Look at verse 13. For the promise that he should be the, inher- the heir of the world was not to Abraham, but to his seed or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Verses 24. Uh, now let's go to verse uh, 22 of Romans chapter four. Uh, and w- therefore it was imputed unto Abraham for righteousness. Look at verse 24. For us also, that's us New Testament people, to whom it shall be imputed, imputed righteousness, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who is delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. Word justification is a doctrinal word that means just as if you'd never sinned. So here, basically, we have to understand the Old Testament, the New Testament, there's no difference in God. God, he's, he's not one who changes, you know. Um, and it's really the same program. The only difference is you and I have, we look backward to the cross that Jesus died for those sins. God didn't just wink, wink at our sin. He dealt with our sin with Jesus. The Jews of the Old Testament didn't have the cross. So they, they believed God and accounted them for righteousness, but they would look forward to the lamb that would be slain. Same salvation that you and I have. That's the argument Paul makes in Romans chapter four. Um, so don't be confused by this, but this is basically what's being said here by Ezekiel. Man, if you wanna be righteous, you gotta believe God, follow God, and break off your uh, unrighteous deeds. That's, that's the idea here in our, our text. So the soul that sins, it shall die, and, um, and the righteous will be blessed, the unrighteous will die. That's what we read there. Um, verse 25, yet you say, the way of the Lord is not equal. Hear now, O house of Israel, uh, is not my way equal? Are not your ways unequal? When a righteous man turneth away from his righteousness and committed iniquity and dieth in them for his iniquity that he hath done, shall he die? Uh, again, when the wicked man turns away from his wickedness that he hath committed and doth that which is lawful and right, he shall save his soul alive. In other words, here in, you know, when they're saying, is the way of the Lord not equal or fair, balanced? Um, uh, he's, the Lord says, of course, my way is fair. Um, and um, the, world, the, the Jews were saying, no, it wasn't. Um, verse 28, because he considereth and turneth away all his transgressions, he that hath committed uh, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Yet, verse 29, saith the house of Israel, the way of the Lord is not equal, O house of Israel. Are not my ways equal? Are not your ways unequal, You're unfair? Therefore, verse 30, uh, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, saith the Lord God, repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions so that your iniquity shall not be your ruin. Cast away from you all your transgressions whereby you have transgressed and make you a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth, saith the Lord God. Wherefore, turn yourselves and live ye. (laughs) Turn and live, repent. That's what it means to turn. Repent and live. 
Uh, we looked at this last three verses there uh, on Sunday. And if you missed that study, it's important. It's an important teaching on repentance, something that we don't hear people teach much anymore. Um, uh, but repentance is a real key in our Christian faith. It means to turn and do an about face and uh, to repent, break off your sins and walk with the Lord. If you're confused about repentance or wanna sharpen your understanding of repentance, we did a whole study on that on Sunday. Important stuff. Well, the Jews were getting, you know, this uh, reminder, you know, uh, faith in God 101. Ezekiel said, man, if you sin, you're going to hell. You're gonna die for eternity. But if you're righteous, you'll live forever. How are you righteous? By following God, believing God, and it will be counted righteous for you. Not that you're perfect or righteous practically, positionally in God, and then in the New Testament, in Christ, who is God, we are declared righteous. It's the good news of the doctrine of uh, imputed righteousness. Uh, you can look that up on our website, Imputed Righteousness, where I've done a whole teaching on just that, Imputed Righteousness. That's one of my favorite doctrines in the Bible um, that you can study and know. Uh, but be that as it may, that's what we'll study for tonight. We'll pick up in chapter uh, 19, Lord willing, this coming uh, fall, next week. Lord, how we pray that your word would just penetrate our hearts as we prayed earlier. Lord, not in one ear and out the other, but be doers of your word. Lord, I pray that we would um, not blame others for our sins, but own them and confess them and repent from them. Lord, um, we know the soul that sins, it shall die. And we know we deserve that death, but you died in our place substitutionarily. You were the propitiation for our sins. You uh, imputed righteousness unto us that we might have the hope of heaven. Lord, what a glorious truth. And now, Lord, help us to be vow keepers. Help us not to break our word. Teach us, Lord, what it is to be people of truth, um, that we live the truth, that we don't live lies, that we don't go against our own word. Uh, teach us to have integrity, Lord. We see that that matters in your word. So give us wisdom, Lord. So bless these people who've taken this time tonight to study your word. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.